The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, Tenerife. For pilots of my generation, that one word doesn't bring to mind thoughts of a warm holiday on sandy beaches, but something appallingly tragic. Today's the 27th of March, and it's the anniversary of a story that has affected many people in many families in many places around the world. The Boeing 747 was such a remarkable aircraft that it completely changed the face of air travel. Originally designed as a proposal for the USAF's need for a very large strategic transport aircraft, when one trip the president of Pan American World Airways asked Boeing for an airliner twice as big as the 707, they already had something on their drawing boards that could do the job. Joe Sutter was transferred from the Boeing 737 development team to manage design studies for the new airliner, and Boeing agreed to deliver the new aircraft by the end of 1969. So short was the time scale, about two-thirds of what was normally expected, that the people who worked on it to bring it home were nicknamed the Incredibles. Developing the aircraft was such a technical and financial challenge that the management was said to have bet the company when it started the project. Despite going into debt by more than $2 billion, the gamble succeeded and from this vast undertaking came an aircraft that is known worldwide as the Jumbo Jet and has become an icon worthy of its title, Queen of the Skies. So successful was the aircraft that orders came thick and fast, initially to Pan Am in 1970, but then to many major airlines all around the world who saw it as an important status symbol to have the biggest and the best serve their passengers. The Dutch airline KLM, the oldest in the world, also became a customer when they purchased their first 747-200 in 1971. The island of Tenerife is one of the Canary Islands and a popular holiday destination and on the 27th of March 1977 there were several flights inbound to Gran Canaria International Airport carrying holiday makers who were looking forward to escaping a chilly winter and exchange it for a few weeks in the sun. One was Pan Am Flight 1736, which had departed initially from L.A., but had a stopover in New York before heading out across the Atlantic. The aircraft was named Clipper Victor, and they were carrying 380 passengers, mainly retired folk, plus 13 flight attendants and a flight crew of three, the flight engineer, first officer, and Victor Grubbs, the captain. Captain Grubbs had over 21,000 flying hours, and the aircraft he commanded that day flew Pan Am's inaugural 747 flight seven years earlier. Another 747 was also inbound, KLM Flight 4805, in an aircraft named Rhine. The captain was one of the most experienced pilots that KLM had, their chief flight instructor, Jakob Velheisen, who had over 11,000 hours with 1,500 on type. 
This flight had been chartered by a travel group and it carried a slightly lighter than normal load of only 235 passengers, 52 of whom were children. As both aircraft were approaching Gran Canaria, there was trouble brewing on the ground. An independence movement was fighting the Spanish government to allow the Canary Islands to become self-ruling. The group had a militant arm that had carried out bombings on the island and they were targeting the airport. At 1.15 in the afternoon, they exploded a bomb in the Gran Canaria terminal, injuring eight people, and then warned the authorities that there was a second bomb at the airport. The civil aviation authorities closed the airport, and all inbound flights were ordered to divert to Los Rodios Airport on the nearby island of Santa Cruz de Tenerife. The airport there was smaller than Gran Canaria International, but large enough to take a 747. Captain Grubbs had good fuel reserves and wanted to hold his Clipper 747 airborne until the airport reopened, but air traffic denied his request and he was ordered to land at Santa Cruz's airport with everyone else. Los Rodios was a regional airport, without the facilities or ramp space to park this sudden influx of large machines. Once the small apron was full, they were forced to park the extra aircraft on the taxiway that ran parallel to the single runway. Before too long, the threat to Gran Canaria International was declared safe and the airport reopened. Keen to get his passengers to their destination, the Pan Am crew asked for clearance to start and taxi out. Unfortunately, the order in which the aircraft arrived and the lack of space meant that Captain Grubbs was blocked in by the KLM aircraft, who was a long way from being ready. Some of the flight crew even got out to measure the distance between the aircraft a mere 12 feet to see if they could safely get around the KLM aircraft, but it seemed impossible. Perhaps expecting a longer delay, the Dutch crew had disembarked their passengers and were refuelling their aircraft with enough to take them to Gran Canaria and then on to Amsterdam without the need to take on any extra. It's likely that the captain thought that in the long run, this would save time. All the while, the weather at Los Rodios was deteriorating. The airfield is positioned around 2,000 feet above the surrounding sea, and moist air rising up the coast easily forms into clouds, which appear as fog on the airfield. As the clouds drifted past, the visibility would deteriorate to only a few hundred feet, a hundred metres or so and there was intermittent rain and mist. Eventually, the KLM 747 completed its refuel, but then a family of four went missing, and once they had been found, the flight could eventually get going. There were several things on Captain Veldhusen's mind. The Dutch aviation authorities had recently introduced a new set of duty limitations. They were complicated and very strict, allowing no flexibility, and the captain risked prosecution under the law should he exceed them. So complex were the calculations that he was required to talk to his operations staff in Amsterdam, who gave him an estimated time to take off, which he could not overrun. 
Another concern was the varying visibility which, since the centre-line lighting at Los Rodios was unserviceable, gave him a higher-than-normal take-off visibility limit. The limit was being broken as the worst of the weather passed overhead, and it would undoubtedly have worried him that this might delay him until he ran out of duty time. With these concerns weighing on his mind, he was at last ready to depart, and he started the form mighty Pratt & Whitney JT9Ds and requested permission to taxi out. The normal route via the parallel taxiway was blocked by parked aircraft, so the only way to get to the takeoff end of the runway was to taxi down the runway itself. The controller gave permission for KLM to enter and backtrack down the runway until they reached the third turn-off point when they would be clear of the parked aircraft. At that point they could use the taxiway to reach the takeoff point. The KLM first officer confirmed his instructions. Roger, sir. Entering the runway at this time and the first taxiway we uh, we go off the runway again for the beginning of runway 30. At this point, the controller changed his mind and said, Correction, taxi straight ahead uh, for the runway and uh, make backtrack. As they groped their way through the fog, the Pan Am aircraft behind them also called for taxi. There is no doubt that the Pan Am crew were also suffering from their own concerns and annoyance at the situation, particularly as they had been delayed two hours longer than necessary while KLM had been refuelled. They were given their instructions, which required them to also enter the runway and follow the KLM, but leave by the third taxiway and complete their short journey to the takeoff point via the parallel taxiway. Communication wasn't easy with the heavily accented controller, and the Pan Am crew asked for clarification on which turn-off they should use to leave the runway. The controller replied, The third one, sir. One, two, three, third one. As the KLM 747 reached the end of the runway, the controller told him to make a 180 and report ready for ATC clearance. In the Pan Am cockpit, the visibility outside was proving a problem for them as well. In addition to trying to complete their pre-takeoff checks, they were having trouble working out which taxiway they should be taking to exit the runway. The small airport diagram they were using wasn't very detailed, and they overshot the third taxiway. They weren't too worried, though, as they could take the fourth instead. Indeed, this was an easier angle of turn for them to make. Having made his 180 turn at the end of the runway, the KLM captain was ready for takeoff. His voice sounded stressed and irritable. He and his crew would have been tired, annoyed and anxious to depart before they ran out of duty time. His first officer called, KLM 4805 is now ready for takeoff and we're waiting for our ATC clearance. The clearance was passed and he read it back. Roger, sir. We're cleared to the Papa Beacon flight level 90 until intercepting the 325 and we're now at takeoff.
As he transmits the read back beside him, his captain says, We're going, and starts to advance the throttles. In front of the KLM aircraft, invisible in low cloud and fog, the Pan Am 747 is still on the runway, trying to find their turn-off point, and has yet to call clear. In response to the ambiguous call from KLM that they are at takeoff, the controller transmits a hesitant OK, but then adds, Stand by for takeoff, I will call you. That vital standby instruction was blocked by a simultaneous call from the Pan Am crew, who, probably also a bit confused, called, And we're still taxiing down the runway, Clipper 1736. Had either the controllers or the Pan Am's called been heard on the KLM cockpit, tragedy could have been avoided, but all that came through on the KLM radio was a loud squeal that often occurs during simultaneous transmissions. A final opportunity to avoid a collision came when the KLM flight engineer heard the tower request that Pan Am call clear and the crew replied, OK, we'll report when we're clear. The flight engineer asked, Is he not clear then? What do you say? replied his captain. Is he not clear then? Again his captain asks, What do you say? The flight engineer tried again. Is he not clear, that Pan-American? Oh, yes, came the emphatic reply. 700 metres away and nearly at flying speed, the Dutch captain sees the lights of the Pan Am aircraft. In desperation, he tries to get airborne and fly over the top. His tail scrapes along the runway and he gets a few feet into the air, but it's way too late. In the Pan Am cockpit, Grubbs exclaims, God am, that son of a bitch is coming! He applies full power and turns hard left towards the grass beside the runway to try to get clear, but at a speed of 160 miles an hour, they can't avoid KLM, and the two aircraft collide. The centre of the Pan Am 747 is ripped open by the belly, gear, wings and engines of the other machine, the right engine slicing through the upper deck just behind the cockpit, the wing taking off the flight deck ceiling. 335 passengers on board were killed in the impact and the subsequent fire, but 61, including the flight crew, survived. The first officer tried to turn off the engines, but the fire handles, normally overhead, were no longer there, and anyway, the lines had been cut. He looked aft, and he could see clear all the way to the tail above the remains of a burning and shattered fuselage. He and Captain Grubbs were perched, alone in their seats, 35 feet above the ground. The flight engineer and the jump seat occupant was still strapped in, but now hanging upside down, having fallen through the first-class ceiling below, which collapsed. The fuselage was on fire, the engine still running, but there was little option for the surviving passengers other than to climb out of the shattered cabin onto the wings and jump. 
A few minutes later, the wing tanks erupted in fire. The crippled KLM aircraft came down 500 feet past the Pan Am machine, careered on for another 1,000 feet before bursting into a huge fireball, a fire that would burn for hours. All of the 248 passengers and crew on board died. The small airport was just not equipped for such a massive event, and hampered by the poor weather, the fire trucks had trouble even finding the crashed aircraft. Eventually, the authorities pleaded for anyone nearby with a car to come and help transport the survivors away to safety. The cause of the accident still provides us with learning points that every pilot flying today can take away. It was clear that the KLM aircraft took off without clearance, but how could such a capable captain make such an awful mistake? The pressures on him to fly without exceeding his duty limitations and the marginal weather conditions must have been a major distraction. The frustration, fatigue and building tension that surrounded him all contributed to the accident. However, the most important factor, the most fundamental lesson and one that many pilots still display to this very day concerns the use of non-standard radiophrasiology. Communication must always be clear, unambiguous, both between pilots themselves and when talking to controllers. Tenerife remains the deadliest accident in the history of aviation. If you like listening to Plain Tales, then please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.